Bonjour, I am Estelle, your host, and this is Wildlife Conservation Insights, the podcast dedicated to the connections between wildlife and human being. You want to know more about wildlife, about what's going on, why some species are getting endangered, what are the challenges our world is facing? You want to meet people that dedicate their life to save animal species? You want to be proactive and also participate in species conservation? This podcast is for you. Welcome to Wildlife Conservation Insights. This is episode 8. Today my guest is also very special. He's a French wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Marc Ancrenaz. Marc is the co-founder of the French NGO Hutan and runs the Kinabatangan Orangutan Conservation Program, a community-based initiative located in Sabah, Malaysian Borneo. He is a co-founder of Pongo Alliance that aims to make coexistence between orangutans and people within agricultural landscapes a reality. He is also the co-founder of the Borneo Futures Initiative that aims at providing cutting-edge science to increase awareness, collaboration and understanding amongst decision-makers, media, NGOs and the general public in Borneo. Finally, he is a scientific advisor for the Sabah Wildlife Department. His expertise includes wildlife research, medicine, population management, and policy formulation within 30 years of experience in wildlife French countries, such as Gabon, Congo, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, and Malaysia. You can find more about Mark on my website, estelvet.com, under episode 8. Without further ado, it is my great pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Marc Ancrenaz. Hey, hi, Marc. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, but actually it's not the morning here. It's already the afternoon. <laughs> Wonderful. So which part of the world are you? Okay, right now, today I am in Borneo. So Borneo is in Southeast Asia, and I'm living on, in the Malaysian part of the island. So there is a six hours difference with France, just to give you an idea. Yes. And uh, Borneo Island is split in three countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. And I'm located in the northern side of the island, in Sabah, which is a Malaysian state. Ah, that's wonderful. So for me right now, I am in France. Um, the weather is quite nice, actually. It's, uh, it's like the Indian summer, you know, it's, uh, it's the end of summertime. It's quite mild, but it's the morning, so it's still a little bit chilly. You are lucky to, uh, sorry to interrupt, you are lucky to catch me now, because in maybe half an hour it's going to rain and rain heavily. It has been raining a lot these past few weeks, ah. especially at... Four, five o'clock for a couple of hours. It's a drunch. The good thing is, because of this rain, this year we haven't got any fires, forest fire. So it's, oh, it's great. Good. I love it. And plus it's cool because Borneo yeah. is in the tropics. It's very close to the equator. So the weather is all year long very humid and very hot. So when it's raining, it's cool and nice. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, do you have a lot of mosquitoes, though? Yes, of course. <laughs> mosquitoes, they are everywhere. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so that's the drawback. But that's really nice that you don't have any fires right now because uh, it can be a huge issue, I am assuming. And especially for species we're going to talk about a little bit later in this episode. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you're doing, and how you got into this field? Yeah, of course. So my name is Marc Franconat. I am uh, originally from Paris, actually a suburb. And as far as I remember, and my parents confirmed that with me, <laughs> I have been interested in wildlife. Animals, of course, in general, but especially the wild animals. And so I remember when I was a kid, I was just focusing only on animals, although I was living, I mean, born and raised in a large city. Paris is not small. So I don't know why I had this passion. And this, until today, has never left me. So that's why. Yeah, it's like a burning fire that you have inside, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And this is why actually I became a veterinarian, because at the time I was interested in, uh, in wildlife. There was no such thing than conservation biology, for example. There was not much ways to get access to what I wanted to do to work with wildlife. So I decided to become a veterinarian. But I knew already that I wanted to move overseas to work with wild animals and not necessarily as a veterinarian. For me, the veterinary study was a tool to achieve my goal, mm-hmm. my dream, I should say. Yeah, it was it was like a stepping stone. You had to yeah. go through that to then achieve what you wanted yeah. to do. And so can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah, so as we just said, I mean, I went to the veterinary school and then I started to work uh, first in Africa in several countries, working with various species like gorillas, chimpanzees, high mm-hmm. eye in Madagascar. And I was mostly doing veterinary stuff at this time. Then I moved to Saudi Arabia and I was in charge of the Arabian Oryx reintroduction program for the kingdom mm-hmm. for three years. It was also mostly uh, veterinary uh, medicine and also reintroduction back to the wild, organizing the reintroduction and so forth. But then after this six, seven years of experience as a vet with wildlife, I decided that I really wanted to do something a bit different, which was mm-hmm. more conservation, but involving people and wildlife and the habitat. So with this in mind, I'm going to explain a little bit. Uh, we moved to Malaysia, to Sabah, and we visited a place called Kinabatra. And I say we, it's Dr. Isabel Lachman and myself. So this okay. was back in 94. We visited okay. this place and uh, we realized that something was very uh, interesting in Kinabatangan, meaning that the place has been used and exploited by people for decades, and the habitats there, the forests, the tropical forests of Borneo, were highly disturbed, highly degraded, highly fragmented. There were human activities everywhere, but still Mm. a lot of wildlife. And this, for me, was a shock because... When I was in Africa or in Middle East, if we wanted to see wildlife, we had to go far away from human communities, from villages, because around the villages, wildlife was gone. And if we wanted to work with people, we couldn't see wildlife because around the villages, there was no wildlife. But then Mm -hmm. we ended up in this place where the first day, for example, I arrived in Sukao, there was an orangutan nest in the middle of the village, in a tree, it was in the middle of the village. And we were like, Isabel and I were like, oh, this is an amazing place to really see how 
or try to understand how wildlife and people can coexist together. Yes. And this is why uh, we decided to create our project here in Sabah. Yeah, that's great. That's actually a, a huge uh, discovery, I would say, because as you said, the, usually wildlife species lives away from human. And in this case, they they coexist. So it is possible. Yeah. It is definitely possible. So you decided to, I would say, to see how they can coexist human and, and orangutan can coexist together in the same within the same environment so how how did that go how did you do it so actually the first uh, thing we wanted to understand was whether orangutan as a species could survive in disturbed forest because mm -hmm. 25 years ago a lot of people including scientists and conservationists they were convinced that orangutan wouldn't be able to survive if they are forest habitat was exploited by humans. Mm -hmm. So we go to Sabah, we find this place, and actually in Sabah, a lot of places were like Kinabatangan, meaning a lot of disturbed forest harboring orangutan. And so we were really puzzled by this situation because we found orangutan in a place they were not supposed to be. They were not supposed to be in disturbed forest. Mm -hmm. And so the first question we really wanted to uh, explore was whether these animals could survive in this disturbed habitat and what would be their ecological requirements to do so. Absolutely. So our first approach was really a research uh, scientific approach. We wanted to study the ecology of orangutan in man-made landscapes. At this time, we were not really thinking about how orangutan could coexist with people. The first step was first to assess if the animals could survive in this kind of disturbed habitat. Mm -hmm. So by basically assessing the situation. Exactly. So this means working with communities because we really believe that communities, not only they need to be involved in conservation activities, but they need to be empowered to become the guardians and the actors of conservation. So the first thing we did was to hire a team of villagers and we trained them to become researchers. So we opened up an intensive study site in the forest and we trained the people to do the work. And 25 years later, the same team is doing the research on their own. So meaning that yeah, every day... Uh, that's great. Yeah, every day they go to the forest, they look for orangutan, they follow orangutan, they collect information, data, as we call that. They are processing this information themselves, they are analyzing the data, and they are also presenting the data. So now they are really the researchers. So this is one mm -hmm. team working on our project. And by the way, our project is called Hutan. Hutan in uh, by Samale in a local language means forest. Okay. And as you know, I'm sure orangutan means people of the forest because of orang course. means people. Yes. I think that's beautiful actually. Yeah. I love it. I think that's really smart the way they decided to to name them. It's it's great because mm. they are really the owner of the forest and now they they need to learn, we need to learn how to coexist together. Mm. Well, this is a thing around the time, of course, people of the forest, they need the forest. But at the same time, we find out that orangutan is a highly adaptable species and they can venture and survive outside of the forest. And it's very important to understand that 
because of course, as we all know, we are in the Anthropocene now, yes. and the natural habitat where orangutan used to live before has changed tremendously over the past decades. And today, the situation that they are experiencing, they are facing is completely different than what it was 50 years ago even. Mm -hmm. It's basically a concept yeah. of evolution. They have to adapt or they will disappear. Yeah, it's a lot of species like that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So yes, but of course, it's an evolution in progress, but it will take a long time to see any kind of differences. But for us, what we really wanted to understand was if this orangutan, if this species could adapt, adjust, and survive in disturbed forest. And one of the reasons why it was so important for us to answer this question is because, first of all, as of today, more than half of the remaining orangutan in Borneo are living outside of protected forests. They are mm -hmm. surviving in forests exploited by people, okay? So if these animals cannot indeed survive in disturbed forests, they are doomed. But if they can adjust and they can survive in exploited forests, there may be ways for people to keep on exploiting the forest and run them to survive. Yes. I'm speaking here about forests that are not protected. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, that's very important work. And so the orangutan that basically lives in fragmented forests, how did you find out that, or I would say, how do they adapt? Basically, how their way of living is different? Well, the first thing we found out is that, of course, orangutans are the largest arboreal creature or mammals on Earth today, meaning most of their life is spent the canopy in the treetops. What we found out is that orangutan can also walk on the ground a lot. Okay? Mm. And this is happening not only in Kinabatangan, where we work, but also in many other places across Borneo, even in Sumatra, where they could face a tiger, for example. And we know that because scientists are using more and more camera traps for their research. And when you set camera traps in a forest in Borneo where you have orangutan, you will get a lot of them. So not only the big males, but also the young ones, the females, the small ones, orangutan can walk. Which means that unlike other species like gibbons, for example, mm -hmm. they can cross a gap. If a place where there is no trees, they can cross it. So it's something super important to consider for their possible adaptation to these new landscapes. The other thing that we found out is that their diet is also adjusted to the resources that are available. In a place like Kinabatangan, we have a lot of what we call pioneer plant species. There are species of plants that are growing when the sunlight is available. And this sunlight becomes available when the forest has been disturbed by people or by natural events. Okay? Mm -hmm. So in this disturbed forest, orangutan eats a lot of new leaves that are super rich in proteins, especially leaves from climbers. There's a lot of climbers because climbers are a pioneer plant species. So in disturbed forest, orangutan actually shift a little bit their diet and they end up eating a lot and finding easily the kind of food they need uh, to sustain themselves. And so, to make it short, we have been following orangutan for 25 years now. And where they are uh, breeding well, they are surviving, they are producing babies who are surviving as well. They find their, uh, their food. So, 
They are, they are able to survive in this disturbed forest as long as people don't shoot them. Yes. Because for, uh, as we know now, the orangutan is a critically endangered species, which means that we are losing more and more of these animals in the wild. Yes. This doesn't mean necessarily that the species is going to be extinct anytime soon. Because please believe me, orangutan is not going to be extinct in the wild. This is for sure. At least not in the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. It's not what critically endangered means in the case of the orangutan. But what is happening is that under the business as usual uh, scenario, we are losing populations here and there. And so the challenge for orangutan conservation is to really stop the decline of the species across the entire range. For example, a recent study that uh, we did estimated that we lost maybe 100,000 animals in the past 15 years, which is mm -hmm. a lot. Yes. But still, I maintain that this species is not going to be extinct anytime soon because there is a few populations already that are stabilized and some of the populations are also going up now because the species is super resilient. And that's yeah, why we that's... need to give it a chance for it to survive in the forest. But the other threat that this species is facing is hunting. And hunting happens in two major situations, either when people feel threatened or when orangutans are creating damages to people's crops, or mm -hmm. when people shoot them for the bushmeat or the pet trade. There is still some places in Borneo where people eat orangutan or where people catch the baby for the international pet trade. Yeah. And hunting is responsible for half of the decline of the species. Which is a lot. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, so do you have any plans to actually, I would say, sensibilize people or make them understand that this needs to be stopped. They need to protect their basically local pool of orang. Yeah, well, it's a very uh, interesting but super complicated uh, question. So what happens with large mammals in the tropics, but also in places like Europe, Western Europe, North America, everywhere in the world, actually, what happens is that, first of all, we create more and more protected areas and we need that for conservation, of course. We need to create protected areas. But a lot of large species, large mammal species, they venture outside of these protected areas. Okay? Mm -hmm. When you think of the wolf or the bear, elephants, and of course... Yeah, it happens with well. every species. Mm -hmm. The large species, yeah. So when these animals are leaving the protected areas, they are entering areas that are used by people. Okay? And this is where it's becoming super interesting, and this is where we need to come up with new conservation strategies. Traditionally, the animals were found in people's gardens, orchards, or crops. They are caught by the wildlife authorities or NGOs, removed and translocated. But by doing this, we further fragment what we call the metapopulation, because if we remove all the animals that are found in these man-made landscapes, we further isolate and fragment the population mm -hmm. who are surviving the protected forest. So one of the key challenges that needs to be addressed today in the Anthropocene 
is to find ways to maintain and to sustain these animals who are making a living outside of the protected areas. Because they are essential to maintain a kind of genetic connection, connectivity between the various populations. It's very, very complex problematic, because huh? you need to take into account uh, so different parameters. And we even didn't talk about uh, diseases, because I'm guessing there are some diseases that are affecting both humans and orangutan. Am I correct? Yes, of course. In, in these new landscapes, there are new challenges and new threats. One of these threats is diseases. For example, we know that the COVID-19 is able to impact great apes, including orangutans. Mm -hmm. But other diseases also could be uh, disseminated by cattle, by pets, sorry, domestic animals to wildlife who come into contact with these uh, domestic animals. So at the end of the day, it all depends on how people will welcome or will support the coexistence. And mm -hmm. earlier you were asking me about how can we do that? Well, there is a need to raise more awareness to work with communities who are sharing the same type of environment. There is a need to first explain to people that if these animals are there, it's because they don't have any other choice to explain to them as well that orangutan is not a dangerous species. A lot of time people are afraid of the orangutan because they are big. So we need yes. to explain to people that it's not so dangerous. If there are conflicts, and this is not only for orangutan, but for any other species, we need to find ways to mitigate the conflicts. If not, we cannot harness the support of the communities for conservation. So we need to spend a lot of time as conservationists to listen to people's aspirations and problems and to try to answer their, uh, their, their, needs. their issues and their needs. Yeah. Yes. So it's, well, you developed very, very well what was going on. So obviously, I would say what you're doing, directly participating in orangutan conservation. But if you had to sum up how your action participates in, in orangutan conservation, what, what would you say? I know it's hard because you, you explain to us a lot. <laughs> no, something I haven't touched on and I want to, to briefly mention that is that, for example, we also find orangutan surviving in agricultural landscape, landscapes dominated by oil palm plantation, mm -hmm. or industrial tree plantation, for example. And for the longest time, nobody want, wanted to believe that. Me the first, I couldn't believe that the orangutan, the man of the forest, people of the forest could survive in a place where there is not many trees, like an palm plantation, but they do. And this is super important to acknowledge, to understand, and to include in our new conservation uh, thinking. Because as I said earlier, these animals who are surviving outside of protected forests are essential if we want to maintain viable metapopulation. So this means that we have to work with the landowners where these orangutans are found, even if these landowners are palmol growers. A lot of people are going to think, well, it's impossible to do that, and uh, you are sleeping with the enemy when you do that, and so forth. Well, I try to be pragmatic. I have been working here in Borneo for 25 years. I realize that orangutans can survive to a certain extent, of course, in these man-made landscapes. Well, as a conservationist, I have no choice. I like it or not, I need to engage and yes. work with the people who are also living there and sharing yes. the same environment. Yeah. So it's really about, uh, as you said, people skills, actually, 
talking to local people, local community, but also talking with large companies that can actually change the landscape, right? Definitely. I mean, I wanted to do conservation because I love wildlife. I wanted to spend time with wildlife. What I didn't know and I realized <laughs> a bit too late is that conservation is not about animals because they it's don't about animals. People. Exactly. Animals don't need us <laughs> in the country. It's all about people. So I spend 95% of my time dealing with people now. I, of course, still go to the forest when I can and follow the animals when I can. But most of my time is spent dealing with people to try to change mentalities, to try to improve policies and practices, and to try to give a chance to these species in these new landscapes. So you're a little bit like a mediator, right? Between the animals and, <laughs> and the people. You're in between yeah. and you're trying to find a way to, to have people coexist with the animals. So how do you how do you keep this burning fire on? How who or what inspire you? Well, I think that given the status of our environment globally, there is no time for second thought. I mean, we just need to do something, isn't it? And everybody can do something at its own level. And so it's difficult, of course, to uh, to keep the fire burning. I really don't like this expression because I'm speaking about fire here, which is one of our major <laughs> threats. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How do you keep the water so, burning? <laughs> yeah, okay. But what I mean is uh, it's difficult sometimes. But at the same time, when you work with people, when you work with wildlife, there is always something to be done to improve the situation. Something I have learned over the years is that nature is very resilient. We need to give it a chance. Mm -hmm. well, but actually, and we don't have the choice. I mean, when we do conservation, it's not actually for animals, it's for people. If we fail, if conservation is failing, and if we are losing our wildlife, our ecosystem, our species is going to suffer and can disappear as well. So conservation is really about people more than anything else. And this is a kind of uh, message that needs to be uh, brought to, to, yeah, to everybody who is listening. Conservation is, of course, for animals, but before anything else, for people. And this is what sometimes uh, keeps me going. I have two kids and I want them to be able to experience what I have experienced mm -hmm. in my life. Yeah, the beauty of nature and, uh, and our planet that is so, so magnificent. Mm. Yeah. I cannot I definitely, disagree with that. Yeah, agree. definitely agree. And now that I also have a baby, I am also thinking about that. I think when you become parents, you actually think about new generation and you want them to be able mm -hmm. to experience, as you said, very well, the same thing that you got the chance to see or experience. Yeah, what I find difficult sometimes is that uh, we have lost so much in one generation, in my our time actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know what will be left after 50 years or 50 years from now, if you want. But at the same time, I know it's not too late to do things and to improve the situation. And actually, we don't have a choice. As I said earlier, yes. I'm convinced of it. If we really want to get out of this bad position where we are today, when we consider climate change and so forth, we need to act and we need to act now. But if we do, I'm pretty confident that things they cannot be reversed, but things can improve and mm -hmm. will be put in a new direction, in a new path where evolution will take uh, place. You were mentioning that earlier. But it's yes. not too late to really improve the situation and we have to do it. Yeah. No choice. 
Yeah, we have to keep uh, hope and to, yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree. So which lead me to, we're going to be almost at the end of this episode. And um, last question I would like to ask you is, do you have a message that you would like to deliver to the next generation of young people? Actually, I don't have one message. I have 90. <laughs> so go <laughs> <But> ahead. <laughs> go First ahead, of all, something, something that we have to accept is that we are all part of the problems. Even when we think orangutan, tropical forest, we are all part of the problem, all responsible somehow for their demise. But the good news is we can also be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Indeed, especially when we consider all these species that are living outside of protected areas, a lot of them can coexist with us. It's just a matter of two things. First, we need to accept their presence there. And I want to tell everybody who is listening that this coexistence is not, I mean, it starts in our own household. If we cannot coexist in our own household with Geckos, small lizards, or even spiders, and all these animals who come to our houses, mm-hmm. we cannot expect people to coexist with orangutan, tiger, elephants, or snakes. Okay? Definitely. This coexistence has to start everywhere everyone is living, and this can be done. The other thing I want to remind everybody is that we are all consumers, okay? And by our daily choices, when we go uh, to the supermarket, we can contribute to support better practices. I'm not going to talk too long about certification, but certification is a tool that promotes better practices. And this is what we need in those places that are exploited by people and where wildlife is still surviving. We need for the industry to embrace better practices to produce the commodities we are all consuming. This is very important to keep in mind that our choices on a daily basis make a difference somewhere in the world. And last thing I want to do and to say, sorry, for all the young people, please come and we need more boots on the ground. Okay, we need more people (laughs) who are dedicated, can make a difference. There are not enough of us on the ground. And this is one of the major issues because a lot of people they maybe think that conservation is not a career or I don't know, but we need more people on the ground. Conservation is very, uh, well, you know what? I stop here. <laughs> I love it. You know, you know, I, I could actually listen to you for like hours, uh, but I think you're really right. And there are a lot out there. There are a lot of young people that actually would love to come and experience and help out because it's all about helping out the right way on what needs to be done. So can you, I think you have a website. Do, do you know the, the name of the website I can yeah. actually find you on? Yes, that yeah, would be great. The, yeah, we have a website that describes a little bit our project and what the heroes of Hutan, who are the people from the communities are doing on a daily basis. The address I think is hutan.org.my. But it's a very well, I mean, and there is a lot of uh, information up there. I also okay. believe in science to drive conservation. So we publish a lot of scientific papers and they are mm-hmm. all in our website. So yeah, for those I have seen it. <laughs> I have gone through your uh, bibliography and it's pretty impressive. And so I will also mention all of that on my own uh, website, which is estelvet.com. 
And I will also mention the links to your website uh, on with uh, associated with this episode, so you can find more information. That's really great and really important. And you might be contacted, Mark, by a lot of young people. <laughs> no problem. It's not too <laughs> I, late to make a difference, and we need more help. I love it. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and for this uh, very interesting and passionate explanation that you actually um, delivered to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank thanks you. a lot to all of you to have listened to, to me and stay safe. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, Marc. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to Wildlife Conservation Insights podcast. You can find more about myself and the show, including our guests, on estelvet.com. If you like it, share it. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Each week, I will select a question or a review from you and will present it to the next podcast. Go to estelvet.com for further information and articles to go deeper into each episode. Bye-bye!